See, because the Bible didn't float down on a cloud, bound in a book form, nor did somebody decide at some point that they were going to wake up in the morning and start writing out the Bible. Rather, over thousands and thousands of years, God inspired faithful men to write poems and, and stories and prophecies and letters and, and histories. And as these documents were written, uh, people, uh, God's people diligently and meticulously collected and copied all of these documents. They collected them into, into, uh, into books and they preserved these stories and these poems for generations to come. And while there are so many people throughout the history of the church that spent their lives copying and preserving and protecting and collecting these ancient manuscripts, uh, they did it for a specific reason. They did it because they believed that these were truly what they are, the inspired words of God. It's actually an amazing story. If you want to learn more about this, you'll be really encouraged just by the amazing faithfulness of these people preserving the original writings of Scripture. But the problem is, uh, the people who did the collecting were human beings. <laughs> and as human beings, people make mistakes. Mistakes, little mistakes, little errors started sneaking into how the Bible was collected and copied. And that might make the Bible seem sketchy to you or untrustworthy or, or not worth putting our time. I started feeling that way a little bit too, but only until I started looking a little deeper on how all of this worked. Because when I was in seminary, uh, I had some opportunities to try to interact with these original manuscripts and see how they fit together. I'm by no means an expert on these things. There are people that really dig into comparing all of these ancient writings and looking closely at them. But as I started looking closely at these different manuscripts and comparing them with one another and looking at the similarities and the differences, rather than this eroding my faith, rather than this tearing down my belief in the truth and the authority and the reliability of scripture, just to the contrary, it bolstered it. Because as I looked at all these manuscripts and saw how all of them fit together, what I began to see was that of all the different manuscripts that are circling, all the different ancient writings, when you look at them and you see the differences, most of them are really incredibly minor. Things like Paul might say uh, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ in one of them, and in another copy he might call himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. Little differences like that. Or maybe other places where they spelled the word a little bit differently. Or maybe they accidentally put in a word that sounded really similar to that original word. Or maybe in some other places they just recognized that when the scribe was copying down the text, he accidentally skipped a line. Just his eyes misplaced when he went back to the original document. In fact, when we look at all of these documents and we look at all of these errors and we see if we can explain how all of them work, and people have tried to do that and are still doing that, what we find is that point. 0.3% of any of the errors anywhere in those manuscripts have any real significance in meaning. Actually changes the meaning of the scripture we read. And of all of those 0.03% differences, absolutely none of them throw any doubt onto a doctrine that we hold to be true. Well, that's really technical. <laughs> But in light of it, the people that actually know what they're talking about, not me, people who really have wrestled with this and spent their life studying this, this is what they say almost unanimously with one voice. 
that of all the ancient documents, the Bible is by far the most meticulously maintained, carefully preserved, and reliable document that has come down to us from all of history, across all of traditions, from any culture. The Bible is reliable. But sometimes we run into passages that fall into that 0.03%. Passages that aren't so easily explained. When we we open up to John chapter 7, verses 53 through 811, this is one of those passages. Because as we look at all these ancient documents and manuscripts of the earliest writings of John, this passage doesn't show up in it. John jumps from 752 to 812, and and this is before the numbering system was there. And this story of the woman caught in adultery is missing, and that's true in almost all ancient Christian traditions. This story isn't quoted by almost any church fathers. The ancient church uh, in the East uh, didn't recognize this passage until a thousand years after Jesus was born. What's more, that this passage bounced around around the book of John. We found it in 7, they found it later on in 8, some put it at the end. Other people have found it in the book of Luke sometimes. Also, uh, when we read the passage, we recognize that if you did jump from 752 to 812, the passage reads pretty clearly then. The conversation just continues on at the Feast of Booths, and it makes this story right in the middle of that feel a little bit awkward. So should we dismiss it? Should we take an X-Acto knife and cut it out of our Bibles? What do we do with this? I think that before we dismiss it outright, I just want to consider a couple a couple things. The church has worked to preserve this story for millennia. Thousands of years, they've worked to preserve this story and never deleted it. Rather, it has taught and instructed and encouraged thousands of believers throughout the centuries. The second thing we have to see is that the Jesus we meet in this passage aligns perfectly with the Jesus that we meet in the rest of the Gospels. This isn't a, another person. He doesn't have a different temperament, a different personality, a different way of doing things. This is the same Jesus. What's more, the last verse of the book of John acknowledges that if all the stories of Jesus were written and recorded in books, the world itself couldn't contain all the stories. And so with all of this in mind, most everybody I read on this topic would agree, uh, seemed to agree at least, that though this might not be inspired scripture, there's little reason for doubting that the events described here actually occurred. So while I personally can't stand here today and say in confidence that this is the inspired word of God, that doesn't mean we can't learn from it. It doesn't mean that we should just pass over it. Rather, today, let's dig into this passage and see what we can learn about Jesus through it. Is that all right? Let's do that. So I'm going to read this passage and then we'll pray. This is John 57 through 8. 11. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the, law of Mo- in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, they stood up and said to him, Let him who is without sin amongst you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you three, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, like I said before, we are here this morning to worship you. We're here this morning because we want to draw near to you. We want to be changed by the truths you have for us. And we want to go out and live lives that glorify you, Lord. So I pray that in this time, our hearts would be fixed on you. We would worship through this passage. We would be changed through this passage. We, as the people who are united by our mutual love and adoption into the family of Christ, we would worship you as one today, now. God, thank you for this family. I pray that as we come to this passage, if anything I say is helpful and true, it would stick in our minds. But if anything I say is helpful or untrue, or even just slightly off base, Lord, I pray that it would pass through our minds and pass away. So, Father, speak through me now. And I pray that our hearts and our attentions would be fixed on what you have for us now. We love you. God, grow that love in our hearts for you today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 7, 53. So we're starting. I'll start reading again. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might find some charge to bring against him. So according to this passage, Jesus, after teaching during the Feast of Booths, he travels up the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. He stays up there overnight, and he comes back in the morning. And when he comes back, he continues doing what he had done the day before, sitting in the temple and teaching. And as he's there, and he's teaching, and there's people circled around him, watching this whole thing play out, the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they bring a woman who's been caught in adultery. And when they bring him, they quote a passage to Jesus, or at least a law to Jesus. They say to him, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, this law is is true. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. And in that passage, we read this. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This passage is hard for us today. This passage for us to understand, for us to understand the Old Testament law, requires that we understand the justice of God and what he expected from his people in the Old Testament. But there's one thing that's interesting, I think, about this law. And it's that this law is set in a specific location, right? It says here, a man meets her, if a man meets her in the city and lies with her. 
And so the point here is, remember, there, there was no glass windows at this point in Jerusalem. There were no tightly sealed doors. The point is, is that if you are in a city, noise travels. And noise can be heard by other people who are around you. And that's important. Because the point of stipulating that this is happening in the city is that it's telling us that this law doesn't apply for situations of rape or sexual coercion in any way. In fact, if we moved on in Deuteronomy, we'd see in just the next two verses that this exact same law is described in the country. And in that situation, if the, the woman could not be condemned at all because there's no way to know as to whether this adultery was consensual or not. And I, I think that's pretty cool. This is God's protection of the victim. He wants to make sure that if somebody receives punishment, they're actually guilty of that crime. That's the God we serve. But anyway, Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24, it's not referring to situations of rape. It's, it's referring to situations of consensual adultery, consensual sex. So this seems to be the situation in John chapter, chapter 8. And it's also confirmed by the fact that Jesus says later on, go to the woman, and from now on, from now on sorry, sin no more. This woman did commit adultery. That's the point, I think, that we have to see to start off with. But do you see the problem? <laughs> I can promise you one thing. She didn't commit adultery on her own. So where's the man? There's really only two options, if you think about it. Either the man fled... And left her to deal with the consequences of their sin on her own. Or the Jewish religious leaders let him go. Those are the only two options. So the thing is we look at this passage and we realize that right from the beginning something's wrong here. Some sin has already been added to the original sin. This woman is not the only one guilty here. But at the end of the day let's just, let's just face it. The leaders don't ultimately care about the, the adultery here. Their ultimate agenda isn't just to carry out justice. They aren't coming to Jesus just to seek his wisdom on how to handle a sticky situation. They come to Jesus with an agenda. And the agenda is spelled out in verse 6. And this they said to him to test him, that they might have a charge to bring against him. So the woman wasn't the only one on trial here. Jesus was on trial. Jesus was on trial as well. So they ask him, Jesus, what do you say? Verse 5, what do you say we should do about this situation? And the way he answers will determine how they'll go about accusing him and arresting him. Because make no mistake, this is not an easy question to answer. They were absolutely right. The Jewish law did stipulate that this uh, was punishable by death. But the Jewish people were under the power of Rome. And when Rome took over a territory, they only wanted two things from their people. Number one, they wanted taxes. Number two, they wanted peace. And so if they allowed the Roman territories to continue executing capital punishment when they saw fit, that would not help maintain peace in the Roman Empire. So Rome took all authority to execute capital punishment. We see that played out with the death of Jesus about ten chapters later. So if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead, stoner. In accordance with Jewish law, he defies Rome. And if Jesus says, no, let her go, we're not allowed to do that by the Roman law, then they can accuse him of breaking the Jewish law. Jesus is backed into a corner here. This is a, a catch-22. There is no right answer, so what will Jesus do? Second half of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin amongst you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So what was Jesus' response? He said nothing at first. Rather, he just stooped down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So they kept asking him, they kept questioning him, and eventually stands up and he addresses them and he says this, let him who is without sin amongst you be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and he keeps writing. It's a strange response. It's a strange response. We, I mean, I, every time I read this passage in my entire life, I always just wanted to know one question. What's he writing? And a lot of people over the years have tried to guess what Jesus was writing. Some people think that he was writing out the Jewish law on the ground. Like saying, hey, I don't have to answer the question. This is what your law says. It's possible. Other people think he's just killing time. That's a common assumption. I don't think Jesus wanted to doodle in that moment. But I think that what's most important isn't what he was writing, but how he was writing. It's interesting, when we look at the Old Testament, there's a couple passages that make me think that. Exodus 31, verse 18, says this. And he, that's God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Deuteronomy 9, 10. And the Lord gave me, Moses is saying, the two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And on them there uh, were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. I think that what's important here, or what's most important here, isn't what he's writing, but how he's writing. Because Jesus is writing with his finger. And the only one who writes with his finger in scripture is God himself. And in fact, when he's doing that, he's giving the law. And remember, this is just a, a possible interpretation. I don't also want to stand up here today and say this is what Jesus is doing. At the end of the day, we can't know for sure what Jesus is doing. And the reason I want to be hesitant about that is because what actually has an impact in this passage? Is it his finger or is it what he does with his mouth? Is it what he writes or what he says? I think it's what he says. Because in the next verse, he says this. Let him who is without sin amongst you be the first to throw a stone at her. And that's really, it seems to be, what actually helps him answer this question, actually get through to these Jewish leaders. And when he says this, what he's doing is he's applying an Old Testament principle. And the principle is simply this. The witness of a crime must be the one who initiates the punishment for a crime. We see that throughout the law in the Old Testament. One example is Deuteronomy 13.9 where it says that your hand... That's the witness's hand. Shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterwards the hands of all the people. And I just think that's a brilliant law. If I wanted to accuse somebody of a serious sin. But I knew that I was going to be the one to throw the first stone. I would really think for a second. I'd want to make absolutely sure that I wasn't falsely accusing somebody. Because if I was their blood was literally on my hands. So Jesus says okay. You're bringing her, you're bearing witness, you say that you caught her in this sin, well, great, go for it. But he adds a further stipulation, if you are not guilty and deserving of punishment yourself, go for it. 
If you have witnessed a crime that is unique from anything, sorry, if you have witnessed a crime that is unique from anything that you have done yourself, go for it. If you are without sin, he says, go for it. Throw the stone. Let her blood be on your hands. And so think about what's happening here. The the sinless God is asking sinful men to testify to their sinlessness. And in verse 9, this is what we see. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So first, the woman was on trial. They brought her and they put her before Jesus. And then the Jewish leaders put Jesus on trial. And then with a few well-chosen words, Jesus puts the Jewish leaders on trial. I can't imagine this was going the way they planned. They came to Jesus saying, this is not about us. This is about you. This is about you and the woman. But Jesus turns the tables and they find themselves under the heat of accusation. They find that they are unable to stand boldly and claim that they are any better than the woman. So one by one, they leave. The shame they came to give landed upon their own heads. Their hypocrisy is revealed. And lest we forget, Jesus was sitting teaching with people seated all around. If there is already tension between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, having him shame them in front of everybody that they teach on a regular basis is not the way to make peace. So John 8, 10 through 11, this is what happens next. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So Jesus doesn't conclude with her innocence. He doesn't conclude by saying, you know what, she, uh, this, this accusation is illegitimate. Uh, She did not commit this crime. Actually, to the contrary, he says, from now on, sin no more, implying that she was guilty of what they said she was guilty of. But what Jesus is doing here, he's offering mercy, and he's calling for repentance. He's saying to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He's offering mercy, And calling for repentance. He removes condemnation and leaves her with an exhortation. He shows compassion, but then calls her to action. He vindicates her and then urges her to virtue. He gives her pardon and then calls her to purity. And I think it's because of this that we can look at this passage. Whether it's original to the text of John or not. And hold firm to the truth It teaches. It's because here, Jesus is doing what he has done over and over and over and over and over again. In the scriptures, throughout time, in his church, across the nations, in the hearts of everyone who believes in him. He makes us righteous, and then he calls for righteousness. He makes us holy, and he calls for holiness. He makes us pure, and he calls for our purity. This is what Jesus does for everyone. We can hang out our hats on this passage in the book of John, whether it's original or not, because we see it everywhere. Can I just read a few? This is 1 John 3, 6. I'm going to go quick. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Colossians 1.10, Paul calls them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Ephesians 2.8-10. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not the result of works so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Matthew 3, 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Jesus says. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, jumping to seven, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. We don't have to take John chapter 8, 1 through 11 on its own. Its message is bolstered by the rest of God's inerrant, authoritative, perfect, flawless, powerful word. And the message is this, Jesus Christ is merciful to sinners. And Jesus Christ calls redeemed sinners to a life of holiness. In that order. Jesus Christ is merciful to sinners. And Jesus Christ calls those redeemed sinners to holiness. Jesus Christ makes us pure. And then he calls us to live in purity. He makes us right. And he calls us to act like it. Because that's just who he is. And thank God for that. Because the reality is the woman standing before Jesus is not that different than you and I. She stood condemned before Jesus and so do or did we. Because no one is righteous. No, not one. And like the woman, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But by faith in Jesus Christ, if we fall upon his mercy, if we trust in his grace, if we hope in his compassion, if we believe in the gospel, if we rely on his loving forgiveness, if we put our faith in him, we are set free from condemnation. We seek all, we seek our victory, our faith in the victory of the cross. And he will say to us, neither do I condemn you. And then once we have received this mercy, he says, go. And from now on, sin no more. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3. Purify yourselves as he is pure, 1 John 3. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Colossians 1. In other words, let him change you. And then let your life display the change that Jesus Christ has worked in you. Let him change you by faith. And then let Jesus's, Jesus put on display a life that has been transformed. And I want to say this really clearly. If you've been listening, do not tune out at this point. If this sounds difficult, if this sounds impossible, it is. It's impossible on your own. It's impossible for you to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord on your own. But praise God, you're not alone. This is a passage from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 that I just think makes <laughs> so amazingly clear this truth. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
He is the one who is making us new. He is the one who is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. He is the one who sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. So while we fight hard for holiness, seeking out our sin and weeding out our sin, while we are working to find our sin, to hate our sin, and to kill our sin, he is the one who achieves our salvation by his death on the cross. And he is the one who is achieving our sanctification, growing us in purity to look more like him. And all of this is purely by grace. Jesus Christ makes us new. He has made us new. And we join him in that battle for a life of holiness. Amen. And so this week, what we're doing when we come to the communion table is we are celebrating the grace of Jesus Christ. We're celebrating the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When he died, bearing our sins on his shoulders, he went to the grave with our sins, and then he rose again from the grave, leaving our sins in the ground. That's what we celebrate when we think about the blood and the flesh of Jesus Christ and we do it together during communion. And I think what's truly beautiful and amazing about communion is that it's not something that we do on our own. We do it together as a community. We are communing around the blood that unites us. We are united as the family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now we come together to celebrate that. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have been made new by the blood, uh, that he shed on the cross, if you have been adopted into his family, if you call him father, then we call you brother and sister. You don't have to be a member of our, fam- of our church family, uh, just a member of the universal church family, the family of God. If, however, today uh, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never uh, submitted and believed in his power to make you new by the blood of, uh, his son, of God's son on the cross, uh, we ask that you not join us the communion table today. This is something that the family of God does to celebrate and remember uh, what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But if today you feel and you you sense that God is calling you, that he is leading you, that he is inviting you to join his family, submitting to his lordship, receiving his cleansing, that is yours. By faith, come to him. Ask him to wash you, to make you new, to be your God, and he will. I promise you, he will not say no to you. (laughs) And if you have kids who are are, are young, uh, we trust that you know the state of their soul better than we do. So we ask that as we go through this process, that you will lead them through at the time you believe they're ready to do so. So now the band's going to start making their way up, and I'm going to pray. And as they're playing, stay in your seat, pray, uh, prepare your hearts for what we're doing here, what we're actually celebrating Don't let this just be a ritual. Make this a time of worship for you, remembering the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And then when you're ready, when your hearts are prepared, make your way up, receive the communion elements, return to your seat, and then I will lead us through the communion liturgy. let, Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for the gospel. We know that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And so, Father, we believe. We believe that that's true. We believe that you have given uh, salvation uh, by the work that you've done on the cross, Lord. And we beg you, God. We beg you that you would send your spirit to stir the hearts of those who haven't made that decision. 
that you would convict those of us who have made that decision to go on mission declaring this good news of the gospel, the good news of your life and death and resurrection, God. The fact that you are our king and that you are still reigning over this world. And so, Father, we pray that during this time, through communion, you would be praised, you would be worshipped, magnified, and glorified, Lord. We love you and we praise you today in Jesus' name.